Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Blue Bottle Coffee. Tommy, tell us about an epiphany you may have recently had. Can't step on my joke. Uh, (laughs) I was hoping to talk to you guys... (laughs) About a moment of sudden revelation or an experience of a sudden and striking awakening akin to Archimedes' discovery of the density of an object or when Isaac Newton realized that a falling apple and the orbiting moon are both pulled by the same force that John had recently. (laughs) Someone left a bottle of blue bottle coffee in the kitchen at the studio and John was like, coffee's coffee. Like, what am I going to do with this? I guess I'll drink it. And then when he poured himself a cup, it changed the way he looked at coffee. I was so excited. I poured the rest on my head. Then, then I ran through the office screaming. <laughs> then it dawned on John. I threw open the windows. My shirt is ruined and I'm drinking subpar coffee my whole life. Do you think that it's because of the coffee that he's been wearing a white tunic and not speaking ever since? <laughs> that, that's how much the coffee changed him? The thing he figured out is that Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee and they take freshness. And now I have that same insane dedication. Very seriously. And the reason is they work directly with farmers all over the world to source the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can grow. The beans are then roasted within 48 hours of your order and shipped right to your door so they arrive at your home at peak freshness. No sitting on a dusty shelf for weeks. Blue Bottle is something for everyone's palate from the lighter, fruit-forward profiles to the deep, chocolatey espressos. John has had plenty of coffee in his day. And Blue Bottle is, without question, the freshest, most delicious coffee. Do you know that uh, Isaac Newton uh, was proud to have died a virgin? I did not know that. (laughs) Sign up. Squad We're going to know if you listen to all three of these cricket conversations. Because those of you who have will get all these. It's a little Easter egg. True fans. (laughs) Sign up for a free trial of fresh, delicious Blue Bottle coffee right now at bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. What have you got to lose? It's a free trial. That's bluebottle.com slash convos, bluebottle.com slash convos. Hey, this is DeRay, the host of Pod Save the People. And I'm excited to have this quick conversation with Emily Bazelon, a New York Times magazine reporter, because she always does a deep dive into the issues that she cares about. And in this conversation, we talk about the role of prosecutors, the untold story, and what we need to learn. Because if you're talking about people who have a huge amount of power, then you want to know what it's like inside their world and how they make their decisions. Hope that you enjoy it. Let's go. Emily Bazelon, thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad to be here. Among other things, my teenage children are big fans of your show. Oh, I love it. Well, I'm excited to learn from you today and for you to help uh, teach so many people. Now, you have written about a lot of things, and one of them is prosecutorial discretion. And we met at the White House talking about fines and fees and and criminal justice reform a while ago. It's a very different uh, White House today than the one that we uh, one that we were in. You also have written about anti-bullying and a host of other issues. So can we start with the discretion of prosecutors? Tell us about it. What is it? What do we need to know? Well, so here's the thing about prosecutors. You know, we usually think of 
a triangle where prosecutors and defense lawyers are on an equal plane and the judges sit up above them. And that makes sense, right? Because we have an adversarial system. And so you want the two lawyers on opposing sides to be equal in stature. But that's really not the system we have as it has developed. And basically what has happened is that there have been a lot of laws passed since the 1980s, largely as a response to the rise in crime that was taking place back then. And the laws gave more power to prosecutors and tied the hands of judges. And I'm talking now particularly about things like mandatory minimums. Once you have something like a mandatory minimum law in place, it's the charge the prosecutor brings that really determines the sentence, along with the deal the prosecutor is willing to make in a plea bargaining situation. And so there's sort of two pressures or two reasons why prosecutors have become so powerful. One is this power to charge and the enhanced power to charge that the laws provide. And the other is the incredible importance of plea bargaining in our system. We now have a system where in state court, and you know most crimes are prosecuted in state court, something like 90%, if you're in state court, almost, you know, 97, 98% of cases are going to wind up being plea bargained. Trials are really a kind of barely alive species in our universe. And at both charging and plea bargaining, it's really the prosecutors, not the judge who are the boss. You're a writer, like a, you're an actual writer, as you already know. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I'm glad you think like, so. Like That's you're a, a writer. <laughs> Is, how did you stumble a across this issue of the discretion of prosecutors? What brought you to it? You know, I've been interested in criminal justice issues for a long time. And I'm, as a writer, always looking for things that are changing. And so, I mean, it was something that I learned about in law school, this idea of the rise of plea bargaining and of the importance of charging. But one of those things you learn about in law school or when you tell like regular people out in the world, they're like, hey, I didn't know about that. I had no idea. Like I see trials on TV all the time. Isn't that the way most cases go? And so, you know, from my point of view as a journalist who did go to law school, that's like a kind of good light bulb moment when something that is very clear to people inside the legal world is not particularly obvious or well known among um, the regular world of citizens. And so then I think part of my job is like to be a translator and explain how that's happening and show people what that looks like. And what have you learned? So you've obviously written about this a lot, and I'll ask you about a specific sort of thing you've written in a moment. But I want to believe, and again, I'm not a writer, so this is me like projecting in a good way. I want to believe that to get to the story that you actually published, that you have talked to so many people and you've learned so much that probably didn't make it into the story or so much that made it into the story, but but maybe not in the way that you got it the first time. Mm-hmm. So what are some things about sort of the discretion of, of prosecutors or this world of criminal justice? Uh, are you still intrigued by or that you learned as a part of this process of, of writing about it? Well, one thing I'm super interested in is the organizational culture of prosecutors' offices, right? Hmm. Because if you're talking about people who have a huge amount of power, then you want to know what it's like inside their world and how they make their decisions. And something I find really surprising still is how little we know. I mean, there is very little data that gets reported out of prosecutors' offices, Um all the numbers we have in court about how people are sentenced, things like racial disparity in sentencing or in convictions. We don't know that stuff inside prosecutors' offices. And so that 
kind of cracking that black box, looking into it, um, that's really interesting to, to me. And the other thing is that I have come to think of the power of prosecutors in sort of two different categories. There's like the perfectly legal way in which prosecutors exercise their discretion, and often there is a harsh result, a maybe disproportionate punishment. And then the second category is that much more rarely prosecutors abuse their power, and we see them breaking the rules and violating people's constitutional rights. And so I want to know what kind of organizational culture fuels the first kind of Mm. maybe overreach of power and what kind fuels the second kind where we're really talking about people essentially doing things that are themselves illegal. That's interesting. It is. That's a great example of things that are like not very sexy, but probably have a huge impact on. (laughs) Welcome to my world. (laughs) Yeah, but like it has a huge impact on, you know, like the way justice is administered or not. It's like if you, if your office has 50 people in the like gang unit, then you're probably going to do a whole lot of gang prosecution. You know, like that's just how it's going to work. What advice would you give to young journalists or, or budding journalists or just young journalists in their careers who are interested in the criminal justice space? Like, what would you say to them if they were like, hey, Emily, you're a seasoned writer who's written big reports and, and books. Uh, like, what's your advice to them? That's a great question. I mean, I think this is a part of our world that is undercovered. You know, it just, any courthouse in the country has stories in it. No, they're not always easy to find. I mean, one thing I'm finding as I have been just like sitting and observing in court for a new book I'm working on about prosecutors is that a lot of what happens is like really hard to understand. You can barely hear. There's a lot of jargon. Um, It takes some time to really figure things out and put together a pattern. But I think if you go back day after day and you just start asking questions, then you look for the things that are surprising, the things that people within the system may take for granted, but that really determine the outcome and impact a lot of people, like you said, or maybe Maybe that just seem like they might be very specific to that particular place. I mean, one of the crazy things about the American criminal justice system is that it's really more than 3,000 different systems because that's how many different district attorneys, offices, and courts and just court systems that we have across the country. It's incredibly localized. And so one really interesting thing is like, okay, well, this is how they do things here and maybe they take it for granted, but like that could be a totally different way than the way that that uh, the same process unfolds across the river in a different county or in a different state. And so I look for those things too. That makes a lot of sense. When does the book come out? Ah, <laughs> I hope that it comes out in, <laughs> this is aspirational. Um, I, I, now that I'm saying this publicly, I hope it's true. I hope it comes out in spring 2019. That is my, my fond wish. Okay. I have to write it though, DeRay. You have to write it. That is, <laughs> uh, apparently the, this question is like asking people, when's the dissertation going to be done? It's like, it'll be done soon. It's like, right. Okay. You really cut to the chase there. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to, I, I'm, I need to know when I'm going to read this book. Yeah. Now, uh-huh. now you wrote a, you wrote a story about a case in Tennessee. Yes. Where a, where uh, a piece of evidence that was crucial was not handed over to the defense. Is that right? That is right. Yes. How did you end up in Tennessee? Like, you don't live in Tennessee, do you? No, I live in New Haven, Connecticut. How you? How did you get to Tennessee? I started out this story being interested in all the things we've been talking about, but in particular, one kind of problem that arises in prosecutors' offices, and this has to do with how they hand over evidence. 
um, and what are called Brady violations, to use a little bit of legal jargon myself. And what I'm talking about here are the rules that prosecutors are supposed to follow when they have evidence that could help the defendant prove their innocence um, or otherwise material to their um, to their punishment. So this is like the stuff that the police might have collected um, along the way that helps the defense as opposed to the prosecution. And whenever prosecutors have that kind of evidence and they think it's material, they're supposed to turn it over to the defense before trial. But they have tremendous discretion over that, right? It's as if they're holding all the cards and the defense lawyer and the judge and the jury can't even see which cards they have. Um, or the metaphor I used in the story was like, imagine professional tennis players where they're calling their own lines, but they can't see each other's side of the court. That's the position the prosecutors are in. So I was interested in this whole question of how well or badly this particular rule, it's called the Brady rule from a case, a Supreme Court case in the 1960s called Brady versus Maryland, how well or badly the Brady rule works. And so I started asking around about places where there have been a kind of pattern of problems with Brady. And over and over again, I kept hearing about Memphis and um, cases that had gone wrong in Memphis. Um, And that brought me back to this question of organizational culture. Well, if you have a district attorney's office where there's more than one violation of Brady and indeed a pattern of people um, saying that there are problems and then judges actually making those findings and overturning convictions um, and even maybe the bar gets involved, starts censuring somebody. Like what's going on there? And so that was one of the initial questions I had um, when I started reporting in Memphis. That's interesting. You know, I hear about a lot of cities too and like we're obviously we're focusing on different things, but I hadn't heard about Memphis as like a, sort of a a place where that was a particular challenge. So once you were tipped off that Memphis had some issues with regard to this issue, was it hard to find a case or did this one just like stick out? Well, the thing about patterns is like I actually had choices, right? Because there was more than one example. And I ended up focusing on the case of Nora Jackson, who was accused of killing her mother, a really horrible um, event in 2005. And I was drawn to this case because it's a really difficult case. Um, There is no physical evidence against Nora. Like to this day, that's true. She was 18 when her mom died. Um, There is DNA evidence. It points away from Nora. It her DNA was not in the blood found at the crime scene. Somebody else's was, not just her mom. So that's interesting. But the prosecutors um, marshaled a lot of circumstantial evidence about Nora and like questions about where she was that night, um, a cut on her hand that persuaded a jury to convict her. And so I wanted to pick a case that would illustrate these problems with withholding evidence. And I can explain that part in a bit. But that also wasn't a slam dunk um, Hmm. so that readers would be thinking hard about how much this missing evidence weighed and just like sort of taken in by the complicated facts of this case and and just be interested in it. What is the name of the piece for people who want to go right now and Google the piece so they can read it? The piece is called She Was Convicted of Killing Her Mother. Prosecutors withheld the evidence that would have freed her. Got it. Now... What do you think the role of the reporter is, either in the context of the criminal justice space or in a larger political context of everything seems to be falling apart right now? That's a great question. You know, 
There is a real sense of urgency right now in a lot of newsrooms because so much is happening, right? And I think a lot of us feel um, a real sense of purpose that, you know, I hope that we always have, but particularly to make sure that we're bringing to light the things that people should know about and, and, and we hope will care about in making decisions about their political leadership. Um, you know, with the criminal justice system, like I was saying, this is like thousands of little local systems. And so one thing I really appreciate about it is that voters have tremendous power to make changes. And, you know, just in the last couple of years, in particular in November 2016, voters in a lot of big cities and actually some small rural counties, too, elected really forward-thinking prosecutors who are promising reform. That's something that we have not seen to this degree before, like a group of newly elected DAs coming in promising not tough on crime, but um, progressive kind of fairness um, driven policies. And and I get excited about things when I think like something's changing because that suggests that, um, that there's something really, you know, new going on to take a look at. What is interesting about the number of prosecutor offices is that it's sort of the same issue with the police is that there are 18,000 police departments. So when we look for like one sweeping change, it's sort of complicated mm-hmm. by the fact that it's not like one office, right? Yes, absolutely. I'd want to, with the police, there are a lot of things that we've seen citizens do that can sort of push police departments to be different or better or to change. What have you seen or what do you think citizens can do to to press prosecutor offices or what have you seen happen? So one thing that's really obvious and basic is they can vote, right? I mean, we don't elect police chiefs, but we elect district attorneys in 46 states. And so voters have direct power over how this office operates and what this person's priorities are and what their commitment is to to fairness and making sure to prevent innocent people from getting convicted as well as punishing people who commit violent crimes. Um, you know, I'm sure you know Rashad Robinson at Color of Change, who's done some amazing work, um, both organizing in places, um, working on police reform and more broadly on other issues. And one thing he said to me recently about this is that DA elections and getting people to think about prosecutors is like a very um, real payoff. He can, uh, like a, a payoff in terms of change. It's not like just a protest. And I don't mean to be saying that protests aren't important because they are, but changing the person who is in office, who is making the decision maybe not to indict a police officer who killed an unarmed person or, um, or a person who is indicting way too many poor people or a disproportionate number of people of color. Those are things that like present an opportunity for real change. And in cities that are full of Democratic voters, have a lot of voters of color, there's a, a, a real um, direct opportunity to exercise political power. What are the states that they don't elect a prosecutor in? Now I'm curious. I didn't know that. There are only three states that don't elect prosecutors, and it's Alaska, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Interesting. We'll go with that for now. Okay. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Stamps.com. Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, let's you know, let's call it what it is. With Christmas already here. <laughs> Jesus. What? Exactly. Waging war. <laughs> <laughs> Who has time to go to the post office? It'll be crowded with people sending Christmas cards and Christmas <laughs> gifts. So do what we do. Use stamps.com instead. And I'm just reading it the way Bill O'Reilly wants us to, and it does sound weird. <laughs> I just Stamp- like look. What is so bad about Hanukkah, these people? Nothing. All right, it's a great on. holiday. 
Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer, then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime, because unlike the post office, Stamps.com is always open. We use Stamps.com to send out t-shirts to guests and to other friends of the pod. It has worked great for us, and it will work for you, too. Right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Avoid the craziness of the holidays at the post office. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Crooked Convo. That's Stamps.com. Enter Crooked Convo. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Crooked Conversations is also brought to you by Sue. I think I shamed Tommy. Lots of things in life. how to do this ad. Can stress you out (laughs) or make you tense. Lead into your personal endorsement. I have used Sue. It was a lovely experience. It was relaxing. It was after a long day of travel. I did it in my home, and you should too. <laughs> Maybe not my home. Tommy, I'm going to be getting a massage at your home. Actually, you know what? The, the problem is that that I've been, Emily and I have been trying to get a couple's massage when John is out of town, but John, our travel schedule. New anecdote. Our travel schedules are, are in sync now because of the tour, so it's like rarely that that happens. Well, the good news yeah, is- you can get one while I'm there. I don't want to. Just do it out by the pool. <laughs> That's all I ask. Guys- don't fight. It's an on-demand <laughs> service that delivers a hand-selected, licensed, experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. They show up with everything. The massage table, the sheets, even music, so you can unwind no matter where you are. Choose did the you kind of massage the you want. Did I, you, I left Tommy, out the oils. They also bring the Why oils. did you leave out the oils? <laughs> because the oils. Weird. What are they supposed to massage you with? What are they going to massage you with? Well, you need those oils, Tommy. That's how they. That's how they. That's how they. They go like this. Oh, he's got hand motions. Yeah. he's got they go hand like motions. Yeah. They go like this. You guys, you get to choose the kind of massage you want, from a <laughs> Swedish massage to a sport massage or a deep tissue massage and more. More you can even opt what for more? a couple's massage. I like a deep tissue, and let me what, tell you why. I don't what like. What more do they mean? Similar to yoga and and spinning classes, I don't like when they bring like. Like you're just teaching. I think of it like as a like a physical thing. I don't like when someone's like, "We're gonna clear your mind." You know, you're here to. I'm just here because I ate nachos. I'm not yeah. here to like be instructed on how to live from you. <laughs> Fully endorse that. Yeah. Uh, therapists can earn over 3.5 times what they'd make at a spa while maintaining incredible schedule flexibility, which means you can book a massage for 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. It also brings the best therapists into the Sued Network. Book via iPhone or Android app or on the web. Soothe is in 50 cities, including most major U.S. cities and international cities like London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, and Vancouver. Book a massage as soon as today. Our listeners are getting a special offer that will get you 20 bucks off your first massage when you use our code CROOKEDCONVO. Download Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store. And be sure to use our code CROOKEDCONVO to get 20 bucks off your first massage. Soothe. Spa quality massages anytime, anywhere. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Now... 
The Brooklyn DA was just elected in New York City or in Brooklyn. That is true. What do you think about that? Is there any, should the world know anything about that? Or is that sort of like been there, done that? Oh, no, I think it's really interesting and important. So the history in Brooklyn is that a few years ago, there was a district attorney named Charlie Hines who'd been there for more than 20 years. And he did some pretty progressive things along the way, like starting a mental health treatment court and a drug court. But then he got mired in scandal. Um, Some of it actually had to do with withholding evidence. um, And then there was a police officer whose work appeared to be tainted based on a, a murder conviction that became unraveled. And so Hines was like, mired in all of that and vulnerable. And um, an outsider named Ken Thompson became the first African-American to be elected district attorney in Brooklyn in 2015. And he came in on a reformers platform and then tragically died um, this past fall. He got cancer and very suddenly passed away. So his deputy, Eric Gonzalez, took over the office as the interim district attorney. And the question in this election is: was, would Gonzalez be elected to his own term um, or would the voters of Brooklyn choose one of about four other reform-minded candidates who are running? And what was amazing about watching this race over the summer and fall was that it was really a to the left. There was pressure on Gonzalez to move over to the left, and, and really almost all the candidates were pushing for changes um, on the left. And I have honestly never seen a DA's race like that before, where there was so much momentum moving away from law and order and toward things like bail reform and not prosecuting people for smoking pot on the street or having a joint and not prosecuting people for jumping over the turnstile. A lot of talk about those kinds of things as opposed to like, how can we crack down on um, as many people as possible? And I should say, Eric Gonzalez won the race this week. He did. It was it was not stellar turnout. No, and that is um, a problem from the point of view of some of what we've been talking about. In the sense that if you want, in the sense that if people are going to understand that this is a really important office of district attorney, then you want them to be showing up and voting. Now, it is true that when you have an off-year primary election and there's really very little else on the ballot, those tend to be low turnout races. Um, But, you know, the ACLU has been doing some polling on this, and I think a lot of people don't really know that they elect their DA, and they don't have a really clear sense of what that person does and how much power he or she holds. Got it. Now, my uh, two last questions. One is, what is something in the news that we should be focusing on that is not prosecutors? So this is the, like, you're in the news often because you're a, you're a writer. Is there anything else just, like, that we should be thinking about uh, that's not prosecutors? Can I raise, like, do I have to stay in criminal justice? No, no, no. Anything you want. Anything. Yeah, I mean, look, I am obsessively following the issues of um, voter rights and fears about voter suppression um, involving the Trump administration and in particularly, sorry, and in particular, this commission that Vice President Pence and Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State in Kansas, have put together. Um, You know, a lot of really alarming um, untruths 
perpetuating this myth of widespread voter fraud that, you know, has been debunked over and over again. And a lot of pushing for the kinds of voter restrictions that just make it harder for people to vote. And, you know, it's it's not hard to see the reasons for this. We know that when you make it easier to vote, more low-income people vote, more elderly people vote. Um, people of color actually vote at high rates already. But, you know, we see the kind of turnout that tends to help Democrats. And so the kind of rule of thumb is if you make it harder to vote, you make it easier for Republicans to win. And if you make it easier to vote, you make it easier for Democratic candidates to win. But we should have a just like universal commitment to the franchise and to broadening the franchise and to see government officials empowered by, you know, the the honor of a commission led by the vice president um, perpetuating myths saying that thousands of people voted illegally in New Hampshire when there's zero evidence of that. That's that's truly alarming. Got it. And the last question is a question I ask a lot of people is uh, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten in your career? or your life that is stuck with you? You know, the thing that is stuck with me the most is that, I'll, that, that one is better at doing something that one deeply loves to do. So if you're doing something because you feel obligated, and look, like sometimes that happens to all of us. and People have lots of constraints on their lives. But if you have a choice between doing a job because like someone thinks you should do it um, or you think it's going to make more money, and doing something you really love and you're not going to starve, do the thing you love and you will be better at it. Because when you bring that sense of just like natural enthusiasm to your work, it, it really shows and it um, it just keeps you going in a different way. It's like, you know, a good kind of fire burning in the hearth, just keeping you engaged. There we go. Well, Emily Bazelon, that's right, right? Yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> Well done. <laughs> Thank you for joining today. We consider you a friend of the pod. I am so glad to be a friend of the pod and truly great fun to talk to you, Dre. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, next up on Crooked Conversations will be Dan Piper, who'll be talking to Mark Leibovich from the New York Times about the NFL. Football is the great spectacle of American life. I mean, it is just a runaway success as far as ratings go and money goes and popularity goes. And, you know, but like American politics, it's, its appeal is finite and it's based a lot on division and it's based a lot on friction. And you sort of wonder if the business model uh, is is not played out. And, and, you know, then you have the whole added, you know, effect of the existential questions about concussions and whether this sport and this whole business model is predicated on people um, mangling their brains, which is, um, you know, you would think not the best approach. Tune in. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.